And would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we have opened our hearts before you in our worship and in our prayers, I pray that you would reveal reveal yourself to us, that you would show us something of the intentions you have for a relationship that has been so richly given us by Jesus Christ. Help us to be able to know you and to understand your purposes and your desires and to sense your heart and then in that, Lord, find ways to enjoy you more and more and live, Lord, a life that you've intended us to live as you have crafted us for yourself. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This morning I'm going to do something that you might consider to be a tad bit risky and maybe just a little bit crazy. Um, So far over these weeks that we've been together, we've been taking a journey along with God's people through the desert places of the book of Exodus. We've been looking episode by episode, learning how God reveals his care to his people. He, He does it by providing streams of water in the desert, bread from heaven, Uh, shade by day, light by night, and and all of it is evidence that he cares, important evidence for those people who find themselves in a desert and wondering what life has for them. But you, you may have noticed that I've mentioned that there is a deeper current beneath this theme, and this morning we have no choice but really to jump right into the middle of that current. Listen carefully to that theme, and the theme is this, God is more concerned in the construction of your whole being, your character, than he is necessarily in your condition. He is more interested in who you are and what you are becoming as a person, what is happening in you, than necessarily what is happening to you. He is more concerned in crafting a quality of soul, a type of character that Paul reveals in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Him who strengthens me. God is more concerned with the quality of your character, with the state of, of, of your being and your becoming, than your circumstances. And he is determined to be the one who will give you that strength. Now, I I can say that because our trip through the desert of betwixt and between may seem pointless at times. Those of you who are in a desert may, may, may give an amen to that, that in the desert things may seem to be particularly meaningless. It's as if life is on hold where in fact it could be the place where, where, where God is able to meet you and give your life whole new shape and form. As we've been going through the book of Exodus, we arrive at a very profound moment that go from chapters 19 through 24 where they arrive at Mount Sinai and then God meets together with Moses and lays down the law and, and there Moses receives the Ten Commandments And here is where I am going to be a little crazy and shift the gears and do something that is risky this morning because I'm going to invite you to move from that moment into the very next book of the Bible, the book 
of Leviticus, which takes all of Mount Sinai into great detail. Because, you see, what God had given was more than Ten Commandments. What God was delivering was the beginning of a whole new life. And the book of Leviticus only serves to illustrate the details of his concerns in that new life. So this morning, I'm going to introduce and actually preach out of an entire book, (laughs) the book of Leviticus. Does that sound crazy to you? And then next week, I'm going to expand the craziness and take it to a whole new level, and I'm going to do the whole book of Numbers, taking giant steps through the rest of the desert so that we can grasp the magnificent vision of what God wants for his people, for you and for me. How he seeks to cleanse our vision and strengthen our soul and inspire our ambition and empower us to progress our way to become the people he intended to be. It's a journey of colossal proportions, so are you ready to join me? I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Leviticus, and some of you may find this to be the first time you've ever actually done that. It's that portion in your Bible that's still uncreased, okay? For most people, the only thing that comes to mind whenever you hear the mention of Leviticus is uh, uh, that that endless string of protocol and and, and the sometimes gruesome practices of of animal sacrifice, or the mind-numbing protocols of how to handle skin disease or mildew, or the mishmash of commandments on, on how to handle the, the fibers of your garments or the seeds that you have in storage. Good grief! You read through this book and you wonder to yourself, what on earth is this all about and why is it in my Bible? It's no, no wonder that this book is rarely studied and, and probably even more rarely preached. I mean, on the, surface, it, on the surface, it is the graveyard where read through the Bible in a year, programs go to die. <laughs> okay. you, you get through Genesis, okay, you hit Leviticus, and you, or in Exodus, you get to Leviticus, and you're going, I think I'm going to go back to daily bread. <laughs> and if that's true for you, then you might be surprised just like me with a couple of discoveries. Let me share a few. One, I was surprised when I discovered, and actually this discovery was initiated by a couple of of my seminary interns who came from Orthodox Jewish backgrounds, that the book of Leviticus is the very first book of the Bible that is to be studied by Jewish children. Did you know that? Not Genesis, not Exodus, not the book of Psalms, not the prophets, not any other book, but from earliest times, Leviticus was the book of the Bible Hebrew children had to learn first. Can you imagine that as a curriculum for Sunday school? I don't know about you, but but that puzzled me until I, I learned that it's because we approach Leviticus in the wrong way. The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham put it this way. He said, Leviticus is the perfect book for our television age, our YouTube age. It's not meant to be read. It is meant to be acted. Look at Leviticus not as a textbook, but as a collection of short plays. Few people like reading plays, but most of us enjoy watching them in the theater or on TV. 
Leviticus is God's invitation for us to act the plays that he has written for our instruction and for his glory. It's funny because he goes on to say, if you, if you want to really get into it, the next time you have your family devotions, you know, uh, uh, set up a little altar on your kitchen table and get a knife and then bring the family cat or dog and, and, and we'll stop right there, okay, you know. But I really like the idea that he brings out here is that, that, that Leviticus is really a collection of short plays written for our instruction and God's glory. He goes on to say this, the many plays in Leviticus deal with all sorts of different situations. Chapter 12 tells a woman who has just had a baby what she must do. And chapter 25, it tells us how you must bail out your relatives if they get into debt. But the most important of all these plays is the one described in Leviticus 16, which describes the great day of atonement ceremonies. And on this most sacred day of the year, the high priest, shrouded in a cloud of smoke, enters into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the nation. And after he emerges, he takes a goat and he confesses the people's sins over it. And then it is led away into the wilderness. And there the goat wanders alone or in later times was killed by being pushed off a cliff. (laughs) Pretty vivid illustrations. He goes on to say, what was the point of these ancient ceremonies and why do neither Christians or Jews practice them nowadays? Was it just for fun in the desert that God prescribed these quaint customs for his ancient people? No, indeed, he says. In these ceremonies, the most important truths of the Old Testament about God and man find their most vivid illustration and expression. Understanding what these rituals in Leviticus mean can help us see what God is like and what Christ's death has achieved for us and what God expects of a relationship with us today. Now let me, let me repeat that. The intention behind all the rituals and sacrifices and offerings that are listed in Leviticus, they are all dramas intended to deliver a very direct and profound lesson of what God is like, what Christ's death has achieved for us, and what God expects out of a relationship that we have with him today. Now there is no way that I could cover all the details of the book of Leviticus this morning and I don't even intend to. But I can draw a few definitive conclusions. The first is that you cannot walk away from the book without realizing that God himself exists in an environment of perfection. Running through all the rituals is the idea that only perfect creatures can approach God. Only animals without any visible defect could be offered in sacrifice. Only healthy people purified with ritual cleansing could approach God. That those who wish to dwell with God must expect his environment to be that of perfection. Why? Because the place where God dwells is holy ground. And the environment in which God exists is itself utterly perfect. Conclusion number one. The second conclusion, definitive conclusion, 
that you draw from reading the entire book is that mankind exists in a state of total imperfection. <laughs> All of the sacrifices make it clear that, that there is something significant missing in the human being and that every single one of us are in need of pretty extreme remedial care in order to even hope to get somewhere near God, get somewhere in the neighborhood where he might dwell. Even the holiest in Israel, the high priests, could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, taking their lives in their hands and, 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 and hoping that they would be shrouded in a cloud of smoke out of the fear that they might actually see God and that when they would see God, it wouldn't be such an intense experience that the sheer weight of His holiness would crush them and they would die. Even the most holy were still imperfect. That's the vision within the details of the book. That there is something utterly pure about God and there is something strangely lacking about every single one of us. And it has created such a huge rift between the two that it would require a seemingly endless and exhaustive list of remedies to somehow bridge the gap. But there is a third definitive conclusion upon which Leviticus is planted that really makes all of the difference. There are three verses that galvanize this all-important conclusion and really becomes the model for the entire book of Leviticus. Three times we find it in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, Leviticus 19, verse 2, Leviticus 20, actually twice there, in verse 7 and in 26. They ring out three times. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11:45, "I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God, and therefore, here it is, the money quote, "Be holy because I am holy." Put your finger there and then turn to 19 verse two. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, "Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy." In chapter 20, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Echoing, echoing, echoing. Be holy for I am holy. That is the one single lesson of Leviticus that took 40 years in the desert to permeate the very character of God's people. Be holy for I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. It's the one single thought that would define the plot line for all of the little mini-acts that are acted out in the book of Leviticus that, that the children of Israel probably played out day by day. And every time that chorus would ring in their ears, Be holy for I am holy. And even as I say that, I have to ask, does that phrase sound familiar to you from any other place in the Bible? It should, because it's a theme that rings out in the New Testament. Jesus echoed that verse in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
We hear it again in the reading that we had this morning and from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. It's obvious that this is not just the key theme that unlocks the book of Leviticus, but it is a key theme that is tied to Jesus Christ and to our faith. And if you want to know what God has in mind as as He bridges that great gap between His perfection and our imperfection, if you want to know what is at God's heart as He invites you into a relationship with Him to join Him, to move into His neighborhood, this is the key that unlocks the door. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you this morning. For years, I... As a preacher, I was really not quite sure how to take those verses. Be holy even as your heavenly Father is holy. Uh, You are to be holy even as God is holy. I I can remember, and probably more often than not, you'll hear this from preachers, uh, using this verse to explain that, that our sheer helplessness makes us hopeless when it comes to God. That that verse is like a hammer that, that, that pounds us down and drives us to our knees. And, and I used to use it as a, as a point to, to, to pound out that argument that goes this way. Here's the standard. If you want to have a relationship with God, if you have any expectation of, of dwelling in heaven, well, here's the standard. You must be holy. The problem is that none of us is holy. Ergo, we're all in trouble The solution, only Jesus Christ is holy, and that is why you need to fall on your knees and surrender to him and let him take your place as he comes before God. Does that sound like a familiar argument to you? It's a good one, and it's a right one, and it's a true one. There is truth in it. And it resonates with all of the scripture. We read that in Romans. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We are all in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That is God's truth. But while that drives me to the knees, I discovered in the study of this book that there's something that lifts me off my knees and puts me on my feet, that there is something more. And I want you to really follow me closely here because it makes all the difference. A number of years ago, as I was doing a study on the attributes of God, all of the things that define who He is and His character, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His eternality, all these things, I came across the study on the holiness of God, and I, I read, I believe it was Thesis Systematic Theology, something that, that just broke open a whole new world to me. God's holiness, he wrote, is the attribute of His being the highest attribute of all the other attributes that preserves the integrity of all the rest of the attributes and contains his person. Because God is holy, because God is holy, he will never be less than what he is in any other attribute. It's his holiness that preserves his completion, his completeness. Let me explain it on a visual level. His holiness is like the belt that surrounds him. 
that ensures that nothing else about him is ever lost, that ever leaks, ever evaporates, is, ever, is anything less than full in its whole building. It, 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 it ensures the integrity and the totality of his person. Are, are you following me with this? Please, this is powerful. Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the most supreme because it ensures that all of the rest of his attributes will always be whole, intact, and never skip a beat. And with that thought, a corner turned in my mind. I found myself quite relieved because I began in that to, be, to see another side of God. That his holiness is not something that he just gathers himself, uh, around himself like a robe and then says, don't anybody touch me until you get certain things straightened out in your own lives. Holiness is the attribute of his being that values completion and holiness, that treasures holiness, and then longs for that same wholeness and completion in all the rest of his creation, including you. Which explains what is in his heart as he deals with creatures like you and me who have lost the edge of what we were created to be. Who, were we to look at ourselves, would see, in fact, whole chunks of our being having been ground out or beaten up or chewed away or eroded because of the impact of sin, where we stand before him almost like Swiss cheese, full of holes. And and the Father God, when he looks at us through holy eyes, does not see us as despicable and undesirable. But it is in his nature, it is in his heart, it is in his passion that there is a desire to, to fill and to complete and to round out and to restore. And that it is the holiness of God that explains the flowing of his completeness toward our incompleteness so that when we see God, we see him as desirous of restoring us to to wholeness once again. And that it is out of his holiness that all the resources that, that, that will bring all of that about begin to flow. And, and, and it removes our sin from being a formidable obstacle that, that, that somehow disqualifies us from being in his presence. But in all humility, having been on our knees, opens our hearts so that he can then fill us and restore us once again. Do you understand this point? And so now, with that thought in mind, I turn to the book of Leviticus. And when I read that, you are to be holy, even as your heavenly Father is holy. I am to be holy. I see a vision for my future, for what God intends to do in me, and in you as well. You may look at your life and think of all the things you have lost, all the things that have been robbed you by sin. But when you lift your eyes to a holy God, you, are to be, you will be holy, even as he is holy, as he then begins to go to work in your heart and in your life. And this then becomes an invitation that I so desperately need. Call it an invitation to be born again, to be restored. 
For the children of Israel in Leviticus, it meant that they would recover all that was lost due to the centuries of slavery where everything had been ripped out of their hands. For you and for me, it means that God loves you and has the will to restore you. And it transforms the idea of spiritual life from from living a life of quiet desperation, attempting to achieve an impossible standard, a life condemned to rules and regulations, and it turns it into a wonderful adventure of opening your heart to God's restoration to become the man or the woman that God meant you and made you to be from the beginning of time as you live in obedience to him. God has the will to restore you. He also has the way. If you go back to that one verse in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7, I want you to make very special note of the way in which it is composed, especially how it ends. Consecrate yourselves, it says, and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. It almost sounds like it's all in our hands, but keep reading. Keep the degrees and follow them. Be obedient. And he goes on to say this, I am the Lord who makes you holy. He assumes the responsibility to restore you. It's not something I can do on my own, but I can do in partnership with him, in partnership with the one who is capable of making it happen. And and, and out of that verse, we, we sense God's mercy going to work and then allows us to go back into the book of Leviticus where we find how God outlines what he does in that work in a number of ways. The first of those ways is talking about how he frees us from our sin. Primarily in the first 10 chapters, we have the list of sacrifices that God breaks through. There are five particular sacrificial offerings that are listed there by which God intends to free his people from their sin. And you might think to yourself, are they effective? Mm, Who knows, but I do know one thing, they are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because every single one of those sacrifices then are found completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he goes to the cross and says, it is now finished. What is the work that God does to restore your life? He frees you from your sin. And then the rest of the chapters, uh, 11 through 27, he, he then goes to work in, in your life. Now, I know those chapters are going to be crazy. They, they talk about, you know, everything from how to deal with insects to how to wash your clothes and what to do with your diseases. And, and you might look at that and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, every area of life is given direction here. Family relationships, worship, sexuality, the treatment of the poor, even personal grooming are touched by God. <laughs> a number of years ago, A.J. Jacobs, a, a secular atheistic Jew, decided to live a, a year of an experiment. He wrote it, The Year of Living Biblically. And what he did was he took the book of Leviticus and he decided to live completely Leviticus all the way through for one entire year. He did it, I think, to begin with as a joke. But at the end of it all, he came out and he said, and, 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 he, and he confessed that, that, that it impressed him that there was a God who actually cared for every single detail of his life. 
When you're in a desert, you may think to yourself, God is so far away, he does not care. But the book of Leviticus comes and all of a sudden you begin to realize, as Jacob actually says in his book, that God is not just a heavenly father, he's a Jewish mother. <laughs> Do you have your shoes on? Do you, are, your, are, are your underpants clean? Are you, you know, all these little things, he cares down to the details. And there must be wonderful comfort in realizing that God cares for every detail in your life as well. And is there to, to be participate in it. And, and with that sort of vision that there is a God who, who cares that deeply about you, then the rest of the book from chapters 23 to 25 is a listing of festivals. It all breaks out into a party. Harper's Bible Dictionary says this, these feasts and festivals are all occasions of joy in times of thanking God for blessing and granting relief and, and to the poor and to the oppressed and are accompanied by singing and instruments and music and dancing and elaborate meals. This book ends with a party because God is pouring himself out upon his people in the smallest details of their lives and is making them new again. There's a powerful moment that still brings me to, to some tears and puts chills down the, my spine. It happened in the 1990s. I can't remember the exact year, but some of you may remember the Promise Keepers. They had a meeting for all clergy to come to Atlanta, Georgia. It was right before the Olympics were to be held in Atlanta, Georgia. Pastor Richard Hohens, Isaiah, and I both flew down there, and there we found ourselves joined by 60,000 other clergymen from all across North America, and I guess all over the world. I can't imagine any larger gathering of clergy at any moment in time. We all met in the Georgia Dome. And, and, and just outside the Georgia Dome, there were these huge construction sites as they were putting together everything for the Olympics. There were steel girders, guys welding, and hard hats and everything like that that we had to kind of wend our way through to get into the, uh, into the stadium. And in the stadium, they were there, and, and, and I, I, I don't even remember what the message was that this one particular speaker was giving. All I remember is that I had to go to the bathroom, something fierce. And so I, right at the end of the message, I, I slipped out and went to the ring around the stadium. And there were glass windows there that looked out over the work sites. And, and, and as I came back in, the message was completed. And then 60,000 clergy were led in song, singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And it was done a cappella. Can you picture 60,000 primarily male voices singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It raised the room. But what stunned me, as I was listening to this, it put chills down my spine. I happened to look through the windows, and I noticed on the work sites, work had stopped. And all these guys in their hard hats who had been busy with their welding torches 
had laid them down, were standing there, and some would take their hats off, were holding them because the sound radiated out. And the song continued from one verse to the next, to the next, to the very last verse. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And there was silence. And in the stillness, it was as if the whole world had been transformed and it turned into holy ground. I turned and I looked and I saw the workmen and they all stood there, heads bowed. I have no idea if any of them were people of faith, but they were certainly met in a moment by a God who cared for them. And the understanding that the lives that they were living were not all that they were meant to live, but there was something so much more. And then they all went back to work. I would like to think that when they all went back to work was with complete new blessing held within their heart. And somehow, it is within that desert place where we, in fact, are acutely aware of how imperfect we are and how weak we are and how much it may have been lost to the years that we need to hear the voice and the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying to us, you are to be holy even as your heavenly Father is holy. And somehow, Lord, it all begins to make sense where then I begin to realize the wonder of the, of the invitation I have in Jesus Christ that I have been crucified with Christ. The sacrifices have now freed me from my sin and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and keeps giving himself to you as well. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, there's enough in our lives to drive us to our knees. And on our knees we should be as we confess ourselves to you that we are by nature sinful and unclean. But Lord, I pray that, that from our knees we might also hear that gentle whisper of grace that says, I want to restore you, my son. I want to restore you, my daughter. I want to lift you up to be the, the creation I intended from the very beginning not just for the days of your lives, but, but for an eternity that we can share together in wonderful fellowship in a heavenly home. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you. And we pray that you would, in fact, meet us in all the small details of our life and help us to know that in obedience to you, in partnership with you, Lord, we are being cleansed and we are being renewed and we look forward to that day when we shall be resurrected and 
and in your presence sing praise to your name for now and forevermore. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.